Hey friends, welcome to the 360 Experience Podcast and my conversation with Mike Stoddard. Now, I want to just give you a little brief overview of Mike and who he is, and then he'll share the rest once we get going together. Uh, Mike is, is a really brilliant man. He has been in the mortgage business for more than 30 years now. In that period of time, he's run uh, many companies, including his own. He was also a top producing originator back in the 1990s. Uh, I've had the great pleasure of getting to know Mike quite intimately over the past five years or so as a, as a client of mine. We've done a lot of wonderful work together, and uh, it is definitely an honor to know him. I think you're going to find today's conversation to be incredibly thought-provoking. I think you're going to learn some new ways to go out and get business right now that maybe you haven't thought of. He and I uh, certainly were in sync with a lot of the same principles, and I think we were able to uncover some really great ideas in this dialogue. Uh, I hope you enjoy the show. Before we get to the show, I have to uh, ask you personally for a favor. If you like what we're doing here, I'd really appreciate it if you could support us by subscribing to the podcast on whatever whatever the mechanism is that you're listening to it on. If you're on YouTube, it would be really helpful if you like the show or if you have questions to make comments. If you're on Spotify or Apple or or Google Podcasts, it'd be really great for you to like the show um, and and support us in that way. It's, it's going to be a way that I'm going to be able to continue to get great guests. I mean, the more people, this is the name of the game in the podcast space, is the more people that are viewing the show, the easier it is for me to go out and find people that you're going to really love and learn from. Um, finally, let me say that uh, in the show notes of this episode, uh, you will be able to go to the link that will take you to where you could get the post coaching of not only this episode with Mike Stoddard, but also all the previous episodes in the 360 experience. After the episode is over, I take about 20 minutes to synthesize my notes and really break down for you some of the key points and to embellish and add some further value, hopefully to you, uh, that you will receive. And now without further ado, uh, my conversation with Mike Stoddard. Mikey, what's happening, man? Good to see you. Hey, good to see you, Tim. Thanks for having me on the show. And you are where right now? I am at my home in northern Idaho, Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. You love it there, don't you? I really do. Um, it was a COVID move for me. I'd always dreamed of living here. Been here almost three years now. And uh, it's everything that I had ever hoped it would be. What do you love about it? Like, what are the, what are some of the, I mean, I know the answer to the question, but because we've talked about it, but I'd love for the listeners to get to know you a little bit better by understanding what your, what lights you up. I love the outdoors, you know, whether that's kayaking or hiking, fishing, camping. I just like being in the outdoors. I love the pine trees. I love the seasons. Uh, just really everything about the outdoors just speaks to me. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it feels to me like for you, that's the respite that you need from like the, the intensity of life. Is that accurate? Yeah, it really is. It's kind of like a, uh, a total shift and a downshift from what I do on a day-to-day -day basis. I've had so many times that people have said, well, I don't, I really don't picture you kind of as this mountain man is type of person, you know, I, I'm like, no, I, it, it's not all suits and spreadsheets and things like that. And so, yeah, for me, I, I feel that it just kind of balances me out so I don't get too far into the business side of things. Yeah, I think that's a really important footnote. I mean, I know a lot of people, I'm sure you do too, who are just kind of one way and have not found their their respite, their their freedom in, in, in another activity that just has them checking out from their head and moving into a different kind of energetic experience. Um, that's, that's super cool that you've... You found that for yourself. I also know that you like cold weather too, because you told me about Norway. 
I, I do love cold weather, but you know, I would say that it it hasn't always been this way in my life. I mean, it's something that I think I learned along the way because I was way too far at one point in my time, just one dimensional in work and everything was about work and everything else suffered, you know? Well, like, so as you found more equilibrium or balance with work and this ability to access things that take you out of your work mind and, and, and bring you into a, a space of relaxation, have you found that your work effectiveness has suffered? It really hasn't at all. Um, it was a story that I told myself for a long time. This is what the job required. And because I was the breadwinner, because I was responsible, because I was all of these things I was telling myself, I put that first and I let everything else suffer. And now I balanced it and I found that, you know what, it wasn't true at all. It's a good thing to, to, to unpack a little bit. You know, I mean, I do think that there's that belief system that a lot of people have high achievers, especially that are type A personalities that have gotten everything that they have in their life as a result of, you know, head down, grinding hard. And it creates a couple of dynamics. One is that they don't really even know who to be when they're not doing that. And then secondly, as I think underneath that is oftentimes a fear that you know, if I put this down for even a weekend um, or a week without checking in, that somehow the house of cards is going to crumble. And I actually find that for me, um, I'm more effective if I do have these momentary periods where I just unplug for a while and refuel. Um, otherwise, I'm just operating on a depleted depleted set of tires, man, <laughs> no tread on them. If you, know, you, wear, you wear the tread out every once in a while, you have to take a pit stop and change the tires, right? Yeah, um, no, no doubt about it. Definitely the case. You know, as I kind of think back about that concept, there were times that I decided that I was going to take a trip, you know, with a family and I was gone for a week. And I was looking for the evidences that I was right. And I could come home and I could find them, right? There were things that piled up and things that went sideways. And and so I was using that to say, see, I do need to double down. I need to triple down on this. But I think the most important shift in my mind was redefining what does success mean? Oh, yeah. You know, if success means number of dollars in a bank account, then maybe the path I was on was the right path. If success means the relationship I have with my children, if success means the peace that I have in my heart, then it wasn't the right path. So I think it's just a redefining of what does success mean for someone who's really driven to achieve. Oh, man, that's such an important thing that you just said right there. I remember when I was in school at the University of Santa Monica, um, I had a similar experience with a different topic in my life, which was um, I was working out with a trainer. I hadn't worked out with a trainer in years. And you know, I was in my early to mid 40s at the time. And I was getting you know, pretty ripped and pretty big and strong and like him and he was pushing me hard and I was grinding hard for about six, eight months. And what I saw in the mirror was something that was that looked really good. But when I got out of bed in the morning, I, I could hardly even stand up erect without excruciating pain. I mean, my entire body was just hurting. And I had to go through this process of saying, all right, wait a minute, what's my definition of being healthy? You know, is it how I look or is it how I feel? And when I started really looking at it through that lens of like, no, my definition of being healthy is just like getting out of bed in the morning and having no aches and pains and feeling vibrant and having a high energy set. It, it really changed my entire outlook on working out similar to the way that, you know, your outlook to work has changed because you've redefined what success is. So I, I really love that you shared that. Like you, when I was reading your bio, 
I didn't realize you and I started in the business the same year, 1992. Uh, yeah, you're as old as me, Tim. Uh, so it's easy, scary. Easy, dude. Easy. Wait, how old are you? 52. Uh, I'm fucking four years older than you, man. I'm 56. So you started younger than I did. You must have been like 21 years old or something, because I think I was about 25 when I started. So we've been through yeah. everything that, you know, we've been through all the same stuff, right? So like yeah. 94, 99. Um, I really wasn't in the mortgage business in 07, 08, but you were, um, you know, you started as an originator and worked your way up to what is currently a role as a CEO, um, of a, of a, a major mortgage company. And you've held that role for, for several mortgage companies. So just give us a quick little, you know, hundred thousand foot timeline of your career, 92, then on to the present moment. Yeah, so 92, I started as an originator, uh, actually started at a hard money lender. Okay. Um, so that was kind of, but I loved it, right? I was able to cut my teeth on a couple of principles. Number one is, I'll tell you what, if you have to sell points and fees, it's a great place to learn how to sell points and fees because you got balloons. But it also taught me that there has to be a, a second sale, right? I had to turn around and I had to sell this private investor. And a lot of times they were just individuals on why this was a good loan. So I did that, um, decided that I wanted to move into the residential space and I was young and I didn't know what I didn't know. And so I just got a list of the top 10 agents and thought, well, this is, this is going to be my clientele. You know, fast forward six months later, I had like the number one and the number three agents in town giving me all of their business because I just didn't know that I wasn't supposed to be able to do that, right? I didn't know that they probably had a relationship that they were never going to move from. And so I just went in blindly, um, quickly became. Wait, wait, wait. Before you go though, well, yeah, hold on. Yeah. Like begs a question. Like how did you get these agents to send you business? What was your value proposition? <laughs> Here's what I found, Tim, is that the value proposition really isn't as much about what I want as is, is what they want and what they need, right? Any relationship is bi-directional. But I need to know what they need, not just simply sell them on what I want. And so the top agent at the time, her name was Jeannie, and she was really one of these agents that was so focused on information, um, status updates, and things like that. You know, you remember, Tim, this was prior to automated systems that got to do everything. So we had to do fax machines the hard way. Yeah, yeah. fax machines. Yeah. And, I, you know, and so she, I, I learned that about her. So what I did is I went into her office and I went to the receptionist and I said, here's what I need you to do. I made friends with her, said, every time Jeannie opens an escrow, I want you to let me know. I don't need the name. I don't need the address. I don't need anything else. And what I started doing is every time she opened an escrow, I said, hey, Jeannie, congratulations on opening the escrow. If you were doing, dealing with me, your loan would have been submitted for underwriting today. And I did, it, did those updates all the way through. If you're working with me, this is the status update I would have given you. This is what would be happening all the way through. And I would have said, if you're working with me, we'd be ready to close now, or you. And I did that on six, seven, eight transactions. And she called me and she said, do you really? And she said, do you really do this, Mike? I'm like, I'm doing it now. And I don't even have your business. So she gave me a shot and that's all that it took. I, I just found out what it was that she wanted and I delivered to her what she wanted. Did she ever call you a stalker? <laughs> uh, I've been called that before, but no, she didn't. Yeah, that's brilliant. Like it, you know, that just speaks to the importance of just simple blocking and tackling sales strategies, right? I mean, it's a lost art, especially in today's day and age where everybody's doing everything on video and and mediums other than belly to belly. And um, 
the resourcefulness that is sometimes required to, to be flexible and malleable with what people need. I love that you highlighted that because, um, I mean, it, it also speaks to, you know, you know, not one size fits all, right? Like not everybody wants the same thing. So taking the time to really get to know the person and understand where their pain points are and then being able to provide a solution of that has everything to do with, with your success. So I hijacked you keep going. I had to ask a question though, about how you got these two agents to give you business. Yeah. So thanks for giving us an no, example. I, no, I love it. I, I think it is really an important point because it is very specific. You know, when I'm coaching and teaching originators, I always talk about, I, I liken things to dating a light a lot, right? So let's say I go into a club. What, what do I do? Sit there with a stack of papers with my bio and just start passing it out to every girl in the club? No, I, I have to find out who I'm interested in getting connected with. And then I have to create a sales pitch, if you will, to that person, right? That resonates. So I think it's a really important point. That's how, how you win it. It's not just this broad-based thing. It's definitely more of a rifle versus a shotgun approach. And let's not forget in this club that you're referring to, this metaphorical club, which by the way, I, I love the analogy and I've used it myself, is everybody in there is married, okay? Like very few of those people that are in that club are single. So you've got to get, you've got to be interesting enough to where they want to break up with their existing relationship. You know, there aren't, there aren't any good realtors that don't have a lender that they send business to. So why should we think that just because we pass out the flyer and our business card, and we show up a couple of times that they should throw us a bone and give us a shot. No, we got to be patient. We need to be strategic and we need to be, we need to be in the right place at the right time, you know? So when they do have a falling out and they are interested in cheating, if we're going to stick with this analogy, <laughs> you're the one they cheat with. Keep, keep going. <clears throat> I like where oh, this is yeah. going already, by the way. I mean, I have a, I have a strange feeling this is going to get fun. Keep going. <laughs> this, this is a hell of a lot of fun already. Yeah, we can really take it from there, you know, for sure. Um, anyway, so going, kind of going back to there, um, you know, I, I had a business partner. His name is uh, Lynn. We decided, you know what? I want to control the experience that my customers have. I really didn't like the space of when I say that we're going to be out of underwriting, maybe things didn't come out of underwriting. So we started our own company in 1994. And it was just a couple of us we had we shared a team um, and we just really ran our team and we ended up getting this little msa in-house relationship with the largest company in town at the time in las vegas and we became known as just like this amazing mortgage company and you know so we, we started having loan officers show up at our doorstep like hey you've got a great reputation can we work here so you know what? I fell into the same trap as every person does in growing an office. Like, oh, that'd be great if you come in and cover the bills. I just get to keep more of what I, you know, I'm doing. And I found that I spent all of my time fixing their deals and everything else. So that didn't work for me at all. I thought, you know, I need to up level the level of originators I'm bringing in. But those people didn't want to work for me because they were afraid I was competition. And so I made a decision that I was going to move away from my origination book and I was going to really focus on working with all of these originators. Right. And, and what I found Tim, is that I, I got more satisfaction of seeing what they could become and helping them unlock their potential than I got out of, you know, being the number one agent in town. I really didn't care as much about that. It really wasn't filling my why as much as helping people could, that could become right. So we, we did that. We had the number one share in Las Vegas for resale transactions for years and years. We'd be countrywide every single month. And were you a broker? Share. Were you a broker or a banker? Banker. We were a bank. When you Control. started when you started your own company, you immediately became a banker. 
we immediately threw in enough money to become a bank for sure. Um, control freak a little bit, admittedly. And, you know, so we just kind of grew that. We grew it into a pretty decent sized company. Um, you know, that company did multi-billions of dollars a year, was in the top 30 in the nation. And then, of course, a financial meltdown, fast forward to 2007 hits. And we were probably one of the earlier casualties there. We had bypassed a lot of the aggregators, whether that was, you know, the Aurora, the Credit Suisse, whoever it was, we were doing our direct securitizations. So when the liquidity on the street dried up, we were probably the canary in the coal mine of that, you know, so that company closed down. And um, from that point in time forward, Tim, I just kind of turned a little bit more into a mercenary. I thought, you know what, I'm just going to help people grow their companies. So I've just kind of been doing that shop by shop, looking at places that are doing 20 million a month, 30 million a month and growing them into multi-billion dollar organizations. And that's kind of how I've etched my little uh, niche into the industry, if you will. And just for the listener's point of reference, just name a couple of the companies that you've done that with. So, and, or your, your company that, you know, that you dissolved in 07, just so some people say, Oh, I remember that company. And that would be know a, you're there. you know, so uh, <laughs> gate, the first place I went was gateway out of Tulsa, Oklahoma. They were a little teeny company at the time. And, you know, they've been wildly successful and Kevin, a few years back became the governor of Oklahoma and he's, uh, he's enjoying life uh, security national out of salt Lake. Um, you know, leader one out of Kansas city, um, you know, and then a brief stint over at celebrity and now into, uh, illuminate home loans. So I want to, it was interesting. Cause like I was tracking with you and I was like, shit, we've had like very similar career paths, <clears throat> except for my, my way was, excuse me while I clear my throat here. Sorry about that. My way was that. I decided kind of the opposite of you, which is I don't want to help other people grow. I want to be the best damn loan officer I can be. And I want to have originators on my team that are super independent and only uh, will just learn from me through osmosis, from being in the same work environment, for me creating a really healthy, vibrant culture within the workspace. And then, and therefore I, I only hired top producers, but there's a couple of things that you said that I'd be curious about because we never talked about this. So control, like I could not agree with you more. Like I think that as an originator, that's why I've said, and I just want to check in with you on like, I think that the first hire that an originator should make when they get to that point where they're doing consistently, you know, six loans a month, seven loans, five loans, whatever it is, somewhere in that range is their own processor. And the reason that I feel that that's so important is because I want to control the experience of my customer and anybody else that's involved in the transaction, i.e. the real estate agents and maybe the CPA and, and whoever else. So that's what I did in, in 94, hired my own processor, took the leap of faith. You know what 94 is like, it sucked. And what you don't know is that I lived in and was working in Northridge, California, and we had just had a 6.7 earthquake and, you know, 40% of the houses were red tagged. So it was really hard when rates were at nine and a half. But I finally got up the, the gumption, you know, I was doing, you know, three, four loans, scratching and clawing to say, all right, I, I know that like, I can't keep functioning in this situation where I've got a processor that is, you know, serving four different people and two of those other three people that are not me are turning in, you know, really crappy files and it's affecting ultimately my reputation indirectly, but quite directly. So I'd be curious. You know, like, and, and by the way, last thing I'll say is I have my processor do things for me because she didn't have enough business initially that would function also as, say, a personal assistant. I mean, they can always, 
you know, double duty there, like, you know, going and dropping off flyers at real estate offices on my behalf and introducing themselves and, you know, creating a special presentation, et cetera. But I, I'd be curious, like in today's market, if you believe that to be true, I've been coaching a few people lately that you know about, about this, about, you know, hey, you know, you're sharing a processor and I know times are tough and, and, and everybody's had to, to right size, but the ultimate goal should be to control the deal and you need to work towards that place. Do you agree with that? And do you have anything to add? I do agree with that. And I think the challenge is, is because control isn't about doing, right? It, it's about oversight of certain key moments in time, the moments that matter in this transaction. And if I don't have that person that really reports to me, I can't control those. And then I would feel like I needed to actually run the relay race with them, right? And make sure that those things are happening until that person really comes over to my side of the of the equation. So, and I think that's a challenge that a lot of originators that I've worked with over the years have too, is yeah, there a lot of people would totally resonate with, yeah, I'm a control freak true too, but that doesn't mean that you have to do everything. It just means that you have to be in charge of the moments that matter and make sure that those moments that matter happen. And when you have shared resources, there's a struggle to do that consistently. And as soon as it doesn't happen one or two times, then the human nature is, well, guess I better make sure that this happens. So now I need to make sure that every time an LE goes out, every time a CD goes out, I'm the one who does this because it didn't happen the way I wanted it to. So totally, totally agree with you. Yeah. It's that mentality of, um, <clears throat> you know, the right way to phrase this is that if, if it can't be done right, I need to do it essentially, basically like I need to do everything. And that's what creates a, a limitation on what you're capable of because you can't scale your business from that place. Yeah. It's these levels of complexity that people go through. Like you said, it's like, okay, five, six deals and then 10 and then 20, you know, where are those levels of complexity and how do you break through those? And how many times have we heard a referral partner? And I, again, I cut my teeth in the real estate agent space. So, you know, I'll use that as maybe an avatar for something that's broader, but how many times have I heard them say, well, Tim was really good until he got too busy, right? Well, there's a way that you have to get through that level of complexity. And what it is, is control of the right things, but not everything, because it's really impossible to close 30, 40 transactions in a month and do all of those functions. There literally is enough time in the day. Yeah, that's why I've always said, that's really well articulated. And that's why I've always said, to people that are considering being an L360, like, you know, the jump, they'll, they'll be at like 10, let's say, or 12 or 15 closed loans a month. And I'll tell them, you know, the, the jump from 15, I remember telling Caleb Legrand this a long time ago, the jump from 15 to 30 is much easier than the jump from five to 10. It's much, much easier. It's actually just a few things that you need to let go of in most cases that are holding you back from taking that giant leap. But it is this almost like, um, it's almost like a, a snake shedding its skin, right? Like when you have different layers and as you climb up the ladder of production, you have to continually refine your job description and make yours as finite as possible. But to your point, that doesn't mean giving up the control of the process. And I think that that's the key thing is it needs to be a process. Do you want to speak to that at all? Well, again, I, I would say, Tim, it, it has to do with the moments that matter. What are those times that really matter? What are the times when I get to lean forward and I get to say to the customer, see, this is what I was talking about, right? And I used to call them my pulse checkpoints, right? And there was two different purposes of my pulse checkpoints. 
number one was to make sure that we were on track because my goal for my team was, uh, and has been for everyone I've coached since, I really want to be ready to close a week early. Doesn't mean that anyone's going to change close of escrow for me, but I want to be ready a week early, right? So I want to find out really early on if there's anything that's off the rails and it's not on that happy path anymore. And what are we going to do as a team to get it back on the path? So I checked that. And I also check the times that we're really driving, again, those moments that matter, making sure that I'm getting the introductions and the referrals from everybody along the way, making sure that people feel that they've got the education, the financial literacy for me that I wanted them to have, that the expectations have been met, or if they haven't been met, how we reset those so that we can turn that into success. So those are the times that I want to make sure that I am, if not controlling, directly, at least making sure that I have a very good feel for that those things are happening when I need them to happen. Yeah, it's that setting, it's that intentionality of setting yourself up to be able to provide good news, right? Like, if you can close a week early, and you let people know, hey, just so you know, I'm, I'm good to go to close, I'm not suggesting that we have to close a week early, but I'm ready, that never is going to hurt your reputation, it's just going to make them feel more at ease and more confident in you. So what are some of the moments that matter? Would you like to share a couple of those and and, and maybe get a little tactical with us in terms of how to leverage them? Sure, maybe the first thing I'd like to do is go through, you know, expectations, I think expectation setting is the most critical aspect of the entire transaction. Un defined expectations lead to resentments 100% of the time. And that can be as something as simple as, you know, I'm giving somebody a quote and I'm saying today, okay, well, my rate's six and a quarter. And like, ooh, well, so-and-so I heard had six and an eighth, but I'm willing to work with you. Okay, well, I can let that go, right? And hope that everything goes great. But if I give them six and an eighth later on, an eighth better than what I quoted them today, all they're thinking is I'm just average. All I did was meet what somebody else had to say, right? And I, I'm going to always reset and reclaim those expectations by saying, well, wait a minute. No, if I give you six and a quarter, I'm doing an amazing job. And the value that you're getting for that, you should be grateful for in essence. I don't know that I exactly put it like that, but you should be grateful for that. And if I ever give you six and an eighth, it's because I'm the best originator you've ever met in your life. So that it just changes that same eventual outcome from a thought process of that's what I thought I should have had to begin with to he's amazing, right? So, and I think when we talk about tactically, what are those times, it's really focused on when are the times that those expectations can go sideways? You know, they definitely have to do with, you know, quoting rates, they have to do with documents and things like that. But for me, very tactically, I think one of the lost arts, Tim, and I, I know you and I have talked about this before, I think this is a lost art, and that's referrals. I think most of the originators today are not really great at getting referrals in the live transaction. And, you know, for my team, if we didn't get at least three from every single person that we did a loan for, we were, I consider that a failure on our side. So this would be just to, I don't want to presume you're talking about cross-selling a listing agent, the CPA, asking the borrower for referrals in, intentionally, you know, I, I presume that what you're talking about is, is at that moment of power, when you are delivering the good news to the buyer's agent who referred the deal to you or not, you're also at that same time simultaneously asking them, hey, who else are you working with right now that we should be talking to so we can provide this level of service to them? Those types of things? Absolutely. I mean, I want to leverage everything that we're doing. It's not an easy business, right? 
So why do I want to have to go out and cold call all the time? I don't. I would much rather leverage what I have. So I want three referrals from every borrower that are other borrowers. And I had an expectation of definitely winning listing agents as well as other things as well, all the way through the transaction. And I set up the compensation of my team to drive those behaviors as well. So it wasn't just on me. And, you know, there's, there's also a really interesting art to those things. It's kind of like the psychology of how do we get those? And I think the reason that most originators today aren't asking for those referrals is because they're just saying, well, hey, if I need you to refer someone to me, every single person's going to say, no, I don't have anyone. Why are they saying that? Well, because they don't know that they have the relationship with somebody to say, hey, you know, this is who you should talk to for a loan. And B, they just don't want their friends to call them up and go, what the hell did you sick this salesperson on me for, right? So it's the psychology of helping people understand, well, how do you go about doing that in such a way that there isn't that obstacle, that people want to share those individuals with you and, and achieve that same goal, if that makes sense. And, and what is that, like, what is that approach that has the person putting aside any resistance that they had because they have fear that somehow it'll be a bad reflection on them or, or don't know, maybe just don't even, they can't get their head around who they might introduce you to. What's the way that you suggest that originator kind of overcomes those things? I think that for the customer, if we put ourselves in their shoes, it's fear of unknown. So first of all, I never call it a referral. I always called it an introduction. And then I defined what it was that I was going to say and do and would show them what I would say and do and made it super benign. And then I also helped them with scripting without telling them that I was helping with scripting, meaning, hey, Tim, I, I understand that you, you might feel a little uncomfortable of you know giving me a name that I'm going to reach out to because you don't know what am I going to say and you don't want your friend to go, what are you doing? Leave me alone. So I just wanted to let you know that you know here's the value of what we're providing. This is what I'm going to say. And it, you can see that there's nothing in there. It's not a hard sale or anything else. This is what I'm going to say and what I'm going to provide. And you know what? If they ever call you and say, why in the world did you do this? Here's what you can say, right? And help them through that thought process. And so often that aspect of helping script people into how they're going to handle things that come up is incredibly valuable. I, I would even take us all the way back to the beginning with when I got the business from Jeannie, I had to help her because she didn't know what to tell her originator that she'd been using for 15 years. I had to tell her what to say because she had no idea how to communicate that. Well, hello, friends, and I hope that you're enjoying this episode of the 360 Experience podcast. To listen to the remainder of this episode, please visit us at The Loan Atlas, where you will also find the most comprehensive resource for mortgage professionals to build their practice, backed by the greatest faculty that's ever been assembled in the mortgage industry. Check us out at the link below or go to theloanatlas.com. Look forward to having you as a guest on our next episode of the 360 Experience Podcast.